Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 11. We're studying verse by verse through this wonderful book. We come to verses 16 through 24 this morning. Romans 11, verse 16 through 24. This question at hand in this section of scripture is what about Israel? Specifically, has God set them aside forever. Paul has said in numerous ways that is not the case. Paul does affirm that Israel's place of blessing and ministry has been set aside during Paul's lifetime because of disobedience, specifically failure of most Jewish people to accept Christ as their Messiah. But Paul is very eager to communicate that this setting aside, which he calls twice here a hardening, should be described in three ways. Number one, it's a partial hardening. That is, there was then and there has always been and will ever be a remnant of faithful Jewish believers in every generation. It was true in the past. People like Gideon, we've pointed out, prophets like Elijah. I was reading this week the book of Daniel. Even at the lowest point of Jewish history where they were so wicked, God used the Babylonians, sent them into captivity. He raised up this remnant of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it just reminded me that in every epoch of history, God has His people. But today there's a remnant of Jewish Christians and they believe on Christ like we do and they're every bit as part of His church as any of us. So it's a partial setting aside. It's also for a purpose. See, God's plan has always been to glorify Himself by making Himself known throughout His created universe. God gave the nation of Israel a very specific blessing and privilege that through them all the nations of the world would get to know about God. It began with that Abrahamic covenant we read about in the book of Genesis. Out of all the millions of people on planet earth, he chose this man Abram in this little obscure place called Ur of the Chaldees and told him to go to a place that I will show you and I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to give you a land and multiply your descendants on the face of the earth and through you all the nations will be blessed. And as descendants of Father Abraham, the Jewish nation inherited these promises and blessings and responsibilities and privileges. But they failed at their task, Paul says here in Romans. Rather than being a blessing to the nations as God intended by holding up a standard of holiness, virtue, and righteousness, Paul declared that because of their sinfulness and unbelief and even hypocrisy, that the name of God was being blasphemed among the Gentiles rather than being honored. Now through the apostle Paul and other evangelists, the gospel was now going directly to the Gentiles. Many of them, thousands, were leaving their idolatrous practices and turning to the true God by placing faith in Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, Paul rejoiced in this. He said, I magnify my office. I glorify the fact that God's using me as an apostle to the Gentiles. But always at top of mind was that God would use even the bringing in of the Gentiles as a way to provoke his fellow Israelites to jealousy that they would ultimately want the same closeness of fellowship and joy that they observed in their Christian friends and neighbors. And so there's a third descriptor of Israel's being set aside. It's partial, it has purpose, but as we've seen these weeks, it's temporary. It's not forever. 
Paul anticipates a great revival, an ingathering of Jewish people before the final judgment comes. I'm going to see that explicitly over the next two Sundays. But in our text today, Paul only teases that prophecy, makes us interested in it. Uh, but really the aim today is a warning to Gentile believers. So let's read our text. Romans eleven sixteen. 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches are broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off in their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fail severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing of his word. Now the title of the message this morning is First Fruits and Olive Shoots. In this text, Paul employs an extended metaphor that would have been very familiar to the people of Paul's day. I saw by the expression on your face as I was reading, it's not that familiar to you, is it? So I'll try to help us understand its meaning and its logic through four points. Number one, the dough and the root. Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now what is Paul speaking of? Just out of the blue, he starts talking about dough. Is he cooking? What's he doing? Well, this is the time of year where it's not unusual to find dough in people's kitchens. They're baking for the holidays. But that was an everyday practice in the ancient world. You had to make your daily bread. But God told Israel that when they inherited the promised land and they harvested their first harvest, from the very first batch of dough where they made their first batch of bread, they were to remember that God did it. And in Numbers chapter 15, verse 18 through 21, we have this concept of first fruits offerings. Listen to what God said to Moses to tell the people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land when I bring you in, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Literally, they would lift it up to the Lord. So it began to be known as a wave offering to the Lord. Then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. On the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering, as the offering of the threshing floor. So you shall lift it up from the first of your dough and you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations." So they would break off a little piece of the dough called a lump. They would wave it before the Lord. And what were they saying? Lord, all of this is from you. I'm setting it aside for your purposes. You'll notice that the word holy is used twice in that verse 16. You might highlight that in some way because that is really the emphasis there. We think of the word holy as sinless. And that's one use of the word. But really in the Old Testament, the essence of the word holy means set aside. Put aside against the whole is dedicated to the Lord. So when the lump of dough is dedicated to the Lord, it's symbolic that all of it is dedicated to the Lord. We have a gentleman in our church who owns a small farm out in East Texas. And every summer, 
when his vegetables start coming in, he brings me a sack of produce. And he always puts a note on it that says, first fruit offering. And I've reminded him over the years, I'm not a priest. And he doesn't offer me any offerings, but he does it tongue in cheek because he remembers this instruction to Israel that when the farmers uh, ate of the produce, they were first to give the first fruit offerings to the Lord as a symbol that all of it was his. Well, that's what Paul is saying. All of Israel comes from that root. It is the Lord's. And so that's the second metaphor there is the root. A root, of course, is the source of a plant's life and vitality. And as we read on, Paul is specifically speaking of an olive tree here. Uh, again, he uses the word holy. This root is set aside to the Lord. Now, admittedly, there are a variety of interpretations of what the root symbolizes here. And as you know, I'm an extremely simple person. And I teach you, as you're interpreting Scripture, to go with the most obvious interpretation. And I believe that's the answer here. What does this root mean? It's speaking, I believe, of the original covenant promises that God made with Abraham. That's where the nation of Israel started. It goes all the way back to Father Abraham as the root of this great nation. And this covenant promise that was made. Now you remember that when God made His promises to Abraham, it was unilateral. Abraham didn't negotiate with God. and God negotiated back and forth and they finally came to an agreement. God said, Abraham, you go lay down over there. And he put him to sleep. And then he sacrificed some animals. And God's presence walked through those sacrifices. And then Abraham walked, woke up and the covenant was accomplished. So it, God did it. It was unilateral. Secondly, as Paul will say here in the book of Romans, it is irrevocable. That is, it cannot be changed. So what God is saying is that I am going to keep my promises to Israel ultimately. For the time being, I've set them aside as a blessing, but I'm going to keep my promises. Why? For my name's sake. How many times in the Bible do we read that phrase? For my name's sake. Not for you, but because I'm a God who keeps my word, I'm going to keep my promises. There's a key passage, a couple of them that I think are important here. Uh, one is in verses 28 and 29 here in 11. Just uh, let's skip ahead. We'll come to this in a week or so. Romans eleven twenty eight. regarding the gospel, they, speaking of Israel, are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. That is, for the time being, God has set Israel aside, partially and temporarily, but He's going to remember His covenant promises because He made them to the patriarchs, of whom, of course, Father Abraham was the first. And then another key passage is in the Old Testament. Mark this in your margin. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. Now, when God tells someone that you're my chosen people, <laughs> human nature is to run with that and become inflated in your ego and believe you must be special and better than others or God would not have chosen you. And so here's what God says to Israel right away in Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a holy people. There's that word holy. You're a people that I'm setting aside for service. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of His own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. But <laughs> the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." And God made a nation from one family. Even when they went up into Egypt, 
when Joseph invited them up there after the famine, there were only 70 souls. But God multiplied them over 500 years until they became so numerous the Egyptians feared them. But from that time on, even though God blessed them incredibly, we see a cyclical pattern in the nation of Israel. It goes like this. God would bless their socks off. Just bless them more than anybody could believe. And that first generation loved the Lord. They worshipped Him as He prescribed. They were faithful to the Lord. But usually by that second generation, when mom and dad and grandma had passed away, that second generation began to go away. They began to run after false gods wherever they lived. And there was a spiritual decline. And when that decline happened, God in His graciousness would send prophets to warn them. You better turn back. You better turn back. I'm going to discipline you. And they didn't believe. They hardened their hearts. And then God would send discipline. Almost always through warfare. He would send their enemies. He would defeat them. And then the people would recognize that surely this is because we've sinned. And there would be a prophet that God would raise up. And He would call them to repentance. And they would repent nationally. And then... God would start blessing their socks off again. And then that first generation after that revival would worship and bless the Lord and then the second generation would fall away. God would send warnings and then He'd send judgment and then they would repent. And over and over again, if you don't believe this, go home and read the book of Judges. It's just one story after the other of revival, decline, repentance, revival, over and over again. And friends, this is why we must not, we dare not disconnect from the Old Testament as New Testament believers. No matter what Andy Stanley tells you, don't do it. Romans 15, 4 says, these things were written for our benefit. God gives us the story of Israel so that we don't make the same mistake. So this is Paul's point. As their forefathers had done. Those Jews in Paul's day had ignored the prophets that God had sent, specifically John the Baptist, the greatest born of woman, according to Jesus. And what message did this prophet preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And some did, but most didn't. Specifically, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And now Paul says they're facing that hardening, that discipline of the Lord. What is hardness of heart? We spoke of this a couple of Sundays ago. Basically, it's just God letting you get what you want. If you want God out of your life, He allows that. That's called hardening. Turning them over to a reprobate mind, Paul calls it in Romans 1. And yet, in the midst of that hardening, Paul is almost screaming, it seems, from this page. But it's only partial. There's still a few faithful. It's, it has a purpose. One day, God's going to bring them back. And thirdly, it's, it's temporary. Don't give up. Now Paul turns his attention away from the Jews and to the Gentile Christians who he calls the wild shoots. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich fruit of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Now olive trees in the ancient world were very important. They were symbolic of life and vitality and peace. Some varieties of olive trees have existed for thousands of years. It's hard to believe that there are living things on planet Earth that were alive when Jesus walked the planet, but there are. I was some years ago out in Sequoia National Park in California, and at the trailhead there was a tree that had fallen over, and they cut a cross-section out of it as an illustration. 
and some historian had marked the rings on that cross section. Of course, a ring equals a year in a tree's life. And they traced it all the way back that this tree was 500 years old when Jesus was born. It's amazing. And many of those olive trees were like that. But what would happen over the years is that olive trees sometimes became less and less productive. And so what a good farmer would do, he would go out and he would find a wild, viable olive tree and he would cut branches off of his tree and then cut branches off of the better tree and graft them together and it would reinvigorate and give new life to that old olive tree. And this is the illustration that, that Paul is making here is that uh, God has chosen in his sovereignty because of the unproductivity of Israel to cut off some of those branches and put in some new branches, the Gentiles. God, through Christ, uses this illustration of cutting off branches many times in the New Testament through the parables. It's, it's, it's an illustration that was very apropos in that day and is today. And so uh, the Gentiles then were outside of the covenant promises of God, but by God's grace, he has grafted them into his promises through faith in Christ. And by the way, what's the purpose of any olive tree? It's to produce olives, right? And this was God's accusation against Israel in Isaiah chapter 5, this time using grapes rather than olives. He says, look, I gave you all the advantages. I gave you a fertile field. I put a tower of protection. I put a hedge of protection all around you. I cleared the stones away. I protected you from invaders. And all I expected of you, Israel, is to produce good grapes. But instead, you produced bad grapes, these little shriveled up huckleberries that were good for nothing. And so because of that, he's now grafted in the Gentiles to reinvigorate the tree. This is another way of saying what we saw last week in verses 11 and 12. Look at it. He says, again, I ask, did they stumble, speaking of Israel, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches to the world, their loss means riches to the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be their full inclusion? He says, look, it's okay for Gentiles to rejoice that they're now part of the covenant blessing." as long as you don't end up looking down on Jews and thinking less of them. Because he says, thirdly, they are the natural branches. A natural branch is one that's attached to the root by nature, or in this case, by birth. And how do we trace our birth and our ancestors? Through genealogies. That's why the Bible is full of genealogical records. In fact, during this Christmas season, you're likely to come across two genealogical records of the Lord Jesus Christ, one in the book of Matthew and one in the book of Luke. Paul was keen of his own genealogy. Remember, he said of himself, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. Every Jewish person in that day knew which tribe they descended from. Very important to them. And so in Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul reminds us that yes, there are great advantages to being born genetically Jewish. He lists them. Listen, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. He calls them his brothers and kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. And then he lists their advantages. To whom belong the adoption, that is God calls them sons and daughters, the glory and the covenants, that is all the promises of God in the Old Testament, 
the giving of the law. They have the Ten Commandments and all of the law. They have the temple service. God told them how he was to be worshipped and let them build a temple to him. And his promises, that is the prophecies. Whose are the fathers? He has the patriarchs like Abraham to look to as the father of faith. But the greatest privilege of being genetically Jewish is you get to be part of the nation through whom the Christ would come. According to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So look, Paul never denies that it's a blessing to be born Jewish. But listen very closely. If you listen to one thing I have to say, listen to this. Here is the mistake Paul says many of his Jewish friends made. They believed that salvation was by genetics rather than grace. They believed that gen salvation was by genetics rather than grace. This is what he said. Is they pursued righteousness, right standing with God. We would call it salvation. But they, they went after it down the wrong trail. They pursued it through works, believing that because they were Jewish, God was pleased with them rather than by faith. And John the Baptist, again, comes on the scene calling them to repent and believe. And they said, we don't need to because Abraham's our father. We're Jewish, John. What do you mean we need to repent and believe? That's what you say to Gentiles, not Jews. You know what John said to that? John said, do not say we are children of Abraham because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Salvation is not by genetics. It has ever and always will be by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what Paul's real point is that he's about to make beginning in verse 18. It's a warning to the us who have been brought into this family through faith not to forget how it happened. Verse 18, back in Romans 11, he says, Do not be arrogant towards the branches, that is the Jews. If you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Look, they were part of the tree before you were. Don't look down on them. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now Paul is speaking now directly to Gentile believers. He, he seems to be anticipated the coming anti-Semitism that I alluded to last week that we've seen historically. Even in so-called Christian countries where Jews were isolated and pushed to the margins and in some cases even murdered. Paul says that's sin, that's wrong, that's arrogance. Don't, don't take the fact that you've been grafted in as, as a reason to look down on them. Do not take an air of superiority, in other words, because you are saved by grace. Not because God saw something in you that was lacking in Israel. And just as God in Deuteronomy through Moses said, Israel, I did not choose you because you were great, but in spite of the fact you were small, to every Christian he's saying, God chose you not because you were great, but in spite of the fact you didn't deserve it. Paul had lived long enough to know that this is the natural tendency of human beings, especially when they are particularly blessed by God. What do I mean by particularly blessed? Well, it rains on the just and the unjust, doesn't it? There are common blessings that are true all over the world. But we would have to admit that some nations and some families are particularly blessed from a human perspective. 
And what happens to those who are particularly blessed is over time, human nature is that they begin to believe they were blessed that way because they deserved it. The natural deduction from that, if they deserved it, it means those who weren't blessed that way didn't deserve it as much as them. And, and that leads to the logical conclusion that if they didn't deserve it, they're not as good as me. I am allowed to mistreat them. And friends, in large measure, if you go back and look at the origins of World War II, that's what it was. Mistreatment of others based on a sense of superiority. Paul says, don't let it happen to you, Christian. There are two great truths to remember when it comes to our salvation. Number one, salvation is always, always, always a work of God's grace. There's not one exception in this room or in this world. No one is saved because they deserved it. And then there's a second and a similar truth that a place of blessing and ministry is a privilege and not a birthright. Paul is holding up national Israel, I think, as a poster child for this truth. It's written down for our benefit. Learn from them. See, Israel thought because they were adopted into God's family, His chosen people, that no matter how they behaved, that God was obligated to bless them and use them. Remember, God saved them not to be a reservoir of His blessings, but a conduit, a channel through which His blessings and His name would be known throughout the world. But they didn't view it that way. They stopped up the canal and, and they began to accumulate God's blessings and look down upon the Gentiles as fodder for the flames of hell and in many cases hated the Gentiles and because of them, the Gentiles hated God. And Paul says, Christian, if you're not careful, that can happen to you and your church. Let's make application. Five points. This can happen to an individual person. We've all known them. People that maybe in their youth were humble, who loved the Lord, who sought Him with all their heart, but they became, quote, unquote, successful in ministry. They began to pastor a large church or write successful books and travel. And next thing you know, they're not doing the things they once did to walk closely to the Lord. Next thing you know, they're cutting corners ethically and morally. Before too long, they're in overt sin. Maybe God warns them through other people to turn around and they don't do it. They harden their hearts. The next thing you know, all is found out. There's scandal. They're set aside. They're no longer in a place of ministry. It can happen, and it's heartbreaking. It happens all the time. It can happen to a family. It can happen that, that a family who once served the Lord and everyone was in church and loving Jesus, it can happen very quickly. My father and I had a conversation a few months ago. We were talking about families that we had known through the years in the churches that my dad had pastors that I grew up with who... The parents were godly people and loved the Lord. Maybe their parents were godly people and loved the Lord, but, but now that the parents and grandparents are, are with the Lord, where's that present generation? Many of them have fallen away. Many of them turned away from the faith altogether. And many of those strong, vibrant little churches that, that were strong one time are drying up. And it only takes one generation. Do you know that? You think about the unbroken pattern of humanity that goes back to the time of Christ. 
my own family on both sides, Christians for four and five and six generations. But I am constantly aware that we are always one generation away from losing our Christian witness. All it takes is this present generation to walk away. That's true of family. We've seen it. It's true of individuals. It's true of whole churches. I did some math this morning, which is a dangerous thing on Sunday morning. Did you know that this year is the 140th anniversary of the founding of First Baptist Church of Calvary? And I thank the Lord for those farmers who were led here, those eight families who started this congregation. And how many pastors have been raised up here and missionaries sent out and the millions of dollars that have funded kingdom work. And how many people were saved and baptized right there. And we say, Lord, don't let it in with our generation. It can. All it takes is one faithless generation for the Christian witness of First Baptist Church of Keller to end. It can happen in a church. It can happen in a denomination. I don't read much about denominations in the Bible, but we have them now for a variety of reasons. Some of them good. And our church is in the Southern Baptist denomination. I can remember growing up, going to these grand conventions, 40 and 50,000 people. And speaker after speaker would get up and say, we are the largest Protestant denomination in the world. And as a child, the impression I got is God couldn't do without us. We found out in the last 30 years He can, can't He? We became inflated, in my opinion, in our ego. Even when I went to our, my beloved alma mater here in Tarrant County to seminary, the first chapel, the president was bound to say, welcome to the biggest and best seminary. They don't say that anymore. Why? Be not arrogant. Remember that salvation is by faith. Walk by faith every day. The Lord doesn't need us. He doesn't need any one person to accomplish His redemptive plan. He doesn't need any family. He doesn't need any church. And He doesn't need any denomination. But sometimes in His graciousness and mercy, He gives individuals, families, churches, and denominations the great privilege of serving Him. But it's not a birthright. He can take it away. And in fact, He can do the same for an entire nation. And don't leave here saying, Brother Keith said, the United States of America is God's second chosen people. I do not believe that. I do believe, as I study history, that God has particularly blessed the United States. We've had a history of incredible freedom, provision against our enemies, abundant natural resources, financial growth and prosperity. That's the envy of the world. And yet, in my lifetime, we have collectively said to God, we don't need you in our business. And we see it at individual levels, we see it at family levels, we see it at governmental levels. I remember a few years ago when the Supreme Court of the United States of America affirmed homosexual marriage as legal. Some of you came to me in my office and said, Pastor, this surely is a tiny minority who made this happen. And I said, no! Don't you say that. That's not what happened. What happened is that this country demanded their sin be legalized and put so much pressure on the government officials, they finally kowtowed and agreed to it. That's what happened. 
You know what God did? He gave us exactly what we wanted. And I hear people say all the time, Pastor, let's pray for revival because if we don't repent, God's going to judge us. Friends, He's judging us already. His judgment almost always is letting our sin go to its natural conclusion. We say to God, we don't want you in our life. He says, I'm out of here. And a nation that has been blessed so uniquely can so easily be set aside. Is it too late? Well, Paul says of Israel, it's not. He says, if they will believe, he will graft them back in. And I think that is applicable to all five of these situations. If you're here today and you're right on the verge of leaving the faith and walking away from the church forever, come back. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will take you back even as that father took back the prodigal son. There are families in this church that are on the brink of divorce. And decimation. Is it too late? No. Confess your sin to the Lord. Turn to Him. He will restore you. What about our church? Look, our church has enjoyed 30 years of prosperity and unity. That's the envy of most of my pastor friends. But it doesn't have to be that way forever. If we become arrogant, inflated in our own mind, believing that God can't get along without us, He'll show us very quickly He can So will you pray with me that God will keep us humble? Keep us lashed to the cross and to His Word and not turn to the left or to the right. Not become obsessed with the baubles of this world. But stay true to our calling. I'd say the same for our denomination. And look, I'm not a cynic when it comes to our denomination. I'm grateful. I was educated by our denomination. I was saved in a Southern Baptist church. I met my wife in a Southern Baptist church. But God doesn't need the Southern Baptist Convention. We need Him. And would you pray for our denominational leaders and our mission boards that, that we would humble ourselves before Him and not be arrogant. And then would you finally pray for our nation. Pray for revival and awakening. Pray for our nation's leaders that if they're not saved, that they would be. That God would not set us aside that we once again could enjoy those blessings so that we could be a conduit to reach the nations for Jesus. The next Sunday, in the next two Sundays, we're going to see why I'm so hopeful about the future. It's because God is going to keep His promises to Israel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, um, we don't understand Your ways. But this analogy, Lord, is clear. You made promises that you intend to keep to Abraham and his descendants presumed upon those promises and became unproductive. And so you cut off some of them and in their place grafted in Gentiles. But it's not forever. One day there's going to be a great ingathering of Jewish believers. And Lord, we, we long for that day. But until then, Father, help us to evangelize all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Father, I pray for an individual Christian who's grown cold in their walk today. Father, would you call them back? Just as you warned the seven churches in Asia Minor that you could snuff out their candle. Lord, there are churches right now on the brink of extinction. 
Would you revitalize them, Lord, and breathe new life into them? Lord, would you find us serving you faithfully at First Baptist Keller if you would come today or a hundred years from now? I pray for families that are about to give up. Encourage their hearts today. Reconcile them, Father. I pray, Father, for our nation again. Lord, would you please revive us again. For your name's sake, for your glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.